Good morning. This is the Real Estate for Breakfast podcast, and I am your host, Phil Coover of Shankana's Tepper Campbell. The Real Estate for Breakfast podcast is a Chicago-centric commercial real estate podcast utilizing attorneys, finance, and real estate professionals to create thoughtful commentary on current real estate issues and entertaining discussion. Today, we have Doug Childers of the Atlanta office of HFF, and Doug comes on to discuss affordable housing or properties that have affordable housing restrictions and their tax benefits and tax credits related to affordable housing. Frankly, I had no idea that this was such an enormous industry, but Doug is a managing director of HFF, and HFF is perennially on the list of uh, brokerage companies that buy and sell a high volume of square footage in the United States. And we had Doug happen to be in town in Chicago, so we we grabbed him for a few minutes for a three-man podcast with my colleague Raul Rodriguez because Doug and Raul go back a long time. And I found this to be a fascinating discussion regarding these properties that are developed for the sole purpose of affordable housing and the tax credits and tax incentives that go along with it, why this is a something that is promoted from both sides of the aisle. It's one of the few issues we have these days where both parties support these sorts of tax incentives for developing this type of of product. And I didn't understand totally until Doug, until I got the chance to sit down with Doug and have him explain how it works. So I found it fascinating. I'm sure you will as well. So I know that you'll enjoy this interview in just a few moments, but before we get to that, I'd like to say if uh, listeners are interested in a particular topic, I want you to feel free to get in touch with us. If you have questions about the the guests or the show, or you'd like to even be a speaker on the show, feel free to get in touch with us at solutionscenter at satcltd.com or by visiting our website. It's realestatebreakfast.com. This is also a good opportunity to mention this podcast is being produced by SATC Solutions Center, L3C, which is the Education Development Division of the law firm Shank Annis Tepper Campbell. I'm an attorney and principal with that firm. Shank Annis Tepper Campbell creates business solutions for individuals, entrepreneurs, and privately held companies. We partner with our clients to provide commercial real estate, business, estate planning, litigation, insurance law guidance to grow their business and protect their assets. Up next the interview with Doug Childers. Enjoy. Good morning. This is Real Estate for Breakfast. I'm your host, Philip Coover, and we have with us today Doug Childers, uh, who is a managing director at HFF. Doug, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. We also have Raul Rodriguez, my colleague here at Shake Annis Tepper Campbell. Yeah, thanks for having me too, Phil. So Raul knows Doug from, from way back. So Raul, thanks for bringing Doug into our, our studio today. Yeah, no, our pleasure. Doug, why don't you just start by uh, tell us a little bit about your, your practice specialty because it's a little bit of a unique niche. And uh, yeah, why don't you just open it up with your, your general elevator pitch. Absolutely, and thanks again for having me. Um, you know, what I do at HFF is I essentially um, act as an intermediary on affordable housing transactions across the country. Um, I lead our efforts out of Atlanta, um, have done a handful of deals here in Chicago, 
And um, what we essentially do is uh, we work with owners and buyers and sellers of affordable housing deals, um, specifically LIHTC deals, Section 42 under the tax code, and Section 8 deals. Um, and what we essentially do on behalf of our clients, the sellers, is we un help unwind these deals once they get towards the end of their regulatory period. But most of the time that entails re-putting it through the program and preserving that affordable housing going forward. Um, and so for essentially, I mean, we are an intermediary that for the most part works on behalf of the sellers. We will assist in recapitalizing large portfolios and things like that, but for the most part, we're, we're, we're purely on the transactional side. Great, thanks for that introduction. Um, why don't you explain what the two different types of uh, Section 8 and the LIHTC deals so look like? I, I think most people's um, impression of affordable housing is you know, the image of concrete cinder block housing projects. Um, and that is, those are really Section 8 deals. Um, back when Section 8 was, was coming to fruition, more in the 60s and 70s, the government would tell developers, if you build the project, then we will subsidize the rents going forward. Um, and so developers did that. Uh, there became a huge disincentive, though, because they didn't maintain the properties because once they actually had spent their money on the construction, they were essentially getting a, a government bond. Um, the rents were guaranteed, and those rents were pegged at market. So there was no incentive for them to update countertops, update kitchens, because they were getting the market rents for, for that area. Um, so in the late 80s, early 90s, they moved away from the Section 8 HUD housing developments to what they call Section 42 LIHTC deals, which in those deals, the developers, excuse me, the developers construction costs are subsidized, but the rents are maintained at very affordable levels. Um, and so when you do these type of deals, these Section 42 LIHTC deals, you've got your general partner who's essentially going to be your local owner operator, and your limited partner is going to be a corporation that is getting the tax benefits by being in the uh, partnership structure. So right now, Google is a, is a large uh, tax credit investor right. in these deals. Mm -hmm. um, and so what essentially happens is that the Google is putting up equity and instead of getting cash, they're getting a small part of cash, they're really getting all their cash flow and tax benefits. Um, and so that's able to deliver new affordable housing to markets while at the same time keeping the rents very low. Uh, they're restricted to be at 60% of area median income. So in a market like Chicago, uh, your, your one bedroom rents would probably be around $1,100 a month, which obviously as you know is very, very affordable. And this has really been a mechanism where it's, you know, you, you now see what's affordable housing and it's kind of more of your, it, it doesn't look and feel like a housing project. And so what we do at HFF is um, two main things. During the Section 42 life of the deal, it's a 30-year compliance period, but a 15-year tax credit recapture period. So at the end of year 15, Google or Verizon no longer wants to be in the transaction anymore, and we help unwind that property. Typically, when we're unwinding it, we're re-upping it through the tax credit program again. So we're helping find a new owner-operator to come in, 
that will redevelop the property will receive the property level cash flow and a new tax credit investor will get the tax benefits for the next 15 years. And when you do that, you're essentially adding another another 30 years onto the period. So it's affordable housing just basically getting recycled again and again. Um, On the Section 8 deals though, a lot of these deals are 30 plus years old um, and just are in bad need for a rehab. And so you can actually rehab these deals to the Section 42 program you get, you still benefit from the market rents and getting the Section 8 uh, subsidy from the government, from HUD, but you're able to um, have a Google, a Wells Fargo come in and provide the equity to, to rehab the properties. And on those deals, those are the deals that are in hot demand right now because even though you're benefiting from the tax credit redevelopment, your rents aren't, being, aren't going down to the 60% income level because they're only concerned about the tenants portion of the rent not the overall portion of the rent and on these section 42 deals there is no section 8 contract on new deals excuse me on there, there there's no on new construction deals there's no section 8 contracts to get a section 8 contract right now hud has to give it to a local housing authority who typically is not giving that to a private developer so these section 8 deals they almost trade as a commodity is a, is a bond-like transaction because you're essentially benefiting from, um, you know, yields in the seven eight percent range, uh, and you know obviously nothing's guaranteed in the environment that we're in right now from a regulatory perspective. But your options are to go buy a ten-year bond and get a two percent yield, or invest in these deals again eight percent yield and have a hedge against inflation in them. Yeah, an eight percent yield is an incredible yield for what people are getting in commercial real estate these days. No, that's, I mean, obviously the, the, these deals, they, they, they kind of come with hair on them. You know what I mean? You're, it's, it's, it's a, the, it's, they, they're typically tougher to manage than your conventional deals, um, simply from the nature of that you've got a lot of, of families that need the subsidy and the issues that kind of, you know, surround that. Um, and you've also got a lot of the compliance work with the government. So, um, that's why you see that kind of enhanced yield on that is because it is, you know, it, it's a lot of compliance. It's a lot of making sure you have a team on site and that's working in the region that can, you know, that, that can weed out problems, things like that. Um, we worked on a deal here in Chicago uh, about now four or five years ago, Parkway Gardens, 694 units. It's at 63rd and King. Um, it went through the tax credit program. It's, it, it was and still is a Section 8 deal. But if you Google Parkway Gardens, I mean, there, there, there's still some issues associated with it. Um, Stephen Ross, uh, obviously a related development, acquired um, that deal. And, um, but yeah, from, from, from our perspective, what we're seeing right now in affordable housing in general is there's just more capital coming into the space. Uh, HFF handle the disposition of the Wilson Company, uh, a developer out of Florida, 9,000 units, all Section 42 Litech product, um, and Starwood uh, ended up buying it. And they had never, they had not owned an affordable housing unit anywhere in their portfolio. Yeah, like the Starwood hotels. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, Very stern, like, yeah. um, and, and his group. And that was just, again, it's another example of, um, to your point, yields are being compressed down. And so these groups are trying to find alternate investments they can get into where they're still getting yield, but they believe the risk the, the risk of debt returns even more enhanced because especially, you know, even on these light tech deals, while you don't get a check from the government every month in the form of a voucher, 
because your rents are so artificially low, you have a huge shelter against any, any type of volatility at, at your property. So like on the deals in Florida that we sold to Starwood, the prevailing market rent was $500 per month higher than in our portfolio. And so essentially you were sheltered from uh, you know, a lot of market instability. So while you weren't getting a bond in the sense that you had a guaranteed coupon coming in every month, you essentially felt pretty good that the market would need to drop significantly before your NOI was, was, was really impacted. Yeah, because you're always going to have pretty yes. much 100% occupancy. Exactly. Well, there's one thing that just uh, I just want to brush out the way is because I think a lot of times people talk about Section 8 housing, what they're referring to. So here in Chicago and Cook County, you're not allowed to uh, discriminate against source of income. So even private owners, if you owned a building that was 10 units or 20 units or whatever it may be, and someone were to come to you with uh, people refer to it as Section 8, but it's house, actually a housing choice voucher program. And that just means that uh, a citizen has applied for a voucher and then is taking that voucher, let's call it $800 a month, and then they're approaching a private landlord saying, I'd like to rent from you and um, I will use that housing voucher program. And then actually the landlord here would have a contract both with the tenant and also with the, the housing association that's involved. And so I think people refer to like, oh, this is Section 8 housing. Um, just because they have a tenant that's using a voucher, that's not correct. That's just you're a private uh, property owner and you had a person come to you and you're not allowed to discriminate. You are allowed to decline them for other reasons, but you're not allowed to discriminate on that basis here in Chicago. So you, you might have that. And, and a lot of landlords like that opportunity because again, they have the guaranteed funds coming in from the government. Uh, but. I just wanted to point out that I think that that's the most commonly thought of description of Section 8 housing that I see at least. Uh, but what we're talking about is buildings and properties that uh, are are solely to be used for this affordable housing. So I just thought I'd yes, throw no, that no, out that, there. Yes, no, that is a very good distinction. Um, the, the, the buildings that we're working on, the Section 8 buildings I've been referring to, they're called project-based Section 8, whereas the 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 subsidy stays with the property. So while the residents qualify, to qualify for a housing choice voucher or to qualify to live at these properties, you have to have an income less than 30% of area median income. Um, at these properties, if that resident moves, they still maintain that, voucher, that, 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 that payment stream at the property level. For a voucher that's going with once someone gets awarded that voucher from Cook County Housing or whatnot, they can take that voucher anywhere it's portable. Um, and so because for that very reason, while some private owners um, like the idea that the voucher you know, is providing them surety of income, because it's portable, you know, it has its own kind of uniqueness about it. And that's why the, the Section 8 properties, the contracts, are so highly sought after by you know, really well-capitalized groups because they truly see it as that I ha my... I'm going to have a revenue stream on this property no matter who lives here, obviously subject to their income qualifications. Sure. Can we go back to Google buy, buying tax credits? Mm -hmm. I was reading this little summary that Raul put together before we started, and I was just blown away by this idea that people can buy tax credits. So is it? Um, I'll let you explain it in a much better way in a second. But let me, so you just have like a hundred thousand dollar tax credit, and they put it up for sale. So does someone want to buy this for ninety thousand dollars? 
that, something like that. And and look, there is, um, you know, maybe we have to edit this out. There, there's not many things the government has done really well over a long period of time, but the tax credit program gets tremendous bipartisan support because it creates incentives for private groups to provide a public good. And so when they were trying to do this Section 42 um, you know, legislation, they're trying to figure out, okay, well, how can we, if, if we're trying to restrict the rents and there's no cash flow at the property level to support the construction costs, how, how are we gonna do this? Um, and you know, I, I, I'm not sure whose idea it was, whether it was HUD or whether it was a Congress members, but the idea became, well, how about people, how, what, if, what if the investors in the deal got tax benefits that's like cash instead of actually getting cash? And so for these tax credits, um, when a property, just to use round numbers here, uh, when a property is, is planned, it will qualify for, you know, we'll just say $10 million in tax credits. And, um, and that developer will typically engage um, a syndicator to go out and sell his $10 million of tax credits to get paid out over a 10-year period. And um, what we've seen uh, is a lot of groups like Google, Verizon, um, a lot of groups that that might I don't want to say be in trouble with the you know with, with with the FTC, but the idea that you know because they're expanding very quickly and getting their you know in different areas of, of businesses, they want to be able to point to their you know their reinvesting back into the community. And so for Google, they're essentially buying these at very you know when I say low low margins, you know, they're typically buying for 95, 96 cents on the dollar for a credit. So you're getting that 4% yield, but that, but that's discount over a 10 year period. So it's essentially to them like a net, you know, it's, it's, it's really not a high yielding investment for them, but they're able to say that over the last fiscal year, we invested in 18 different projects with a total of, you know, $180 million or whatnot. Um, and that's really seeing, and, and, and that's what's been able to drive all the affordable housing development is all these corporations that have put money into the deals because they get the the corporate goodwill of doing this. But in the same sense, um, their 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 benefit they're getting is is in tax savings. So if Google has a a uh, hundred million dollar tax bill to the IRS um, and they've got ninety million dollars of tax credits in there, they bought for eighty five million dollars. They essentially just made a five million dollar profit um, by putting those tax credits against their corporate tax liability. Do they also own part of the property? Yeah, so on paper, they're actually 99.9% .9 owner of the real estate. Um, because the IRS, when, when, when they're looking at partnership tax returns, um, the credits flow in a pro rata share to, um, to the ownership structure. And so in these deals, even though Coca-Cola, um, you know, is going to be the tax credit equity partner in it. They're 99.9% .9 owner, but they receive a nominal amount of cash flow of the property. Almost all the cash flow is controlled by the local operating partner. Okay, yeah, that was my next question. Is like, so what's the incentive of the person developing the property? So the, per if they the, person does, the, the incentive for the person developing the property is that they're also getting developer fees um, when they do these deals. Um, and typically, uh, that's going to run, each state is different. Um, while this is a federal program, they were also very smart to allow the states to actually dictate how their credits get allocated per each year. Um, some states like, uh, like North Carolina 
are very focused on we're going to spread the credits out you know in a pro rata share across the entire region other states like illinois recognize that you know obviously there's a much higher demand for affordable housing in cook county than say you know rockford illinois or whatnot and so it's a federal program that the states administer, um, which again allows for creative, you know, for those states to creatively make sure their housing goals are, are satisfied. Are these uh, are these developers experienced in in, in this field, or yeah. a lot of times do you find yourself having to educate them? No, like, this, you- these are um, the these are all of the clients that we work with on the development side um, are extremely. Most of them come from actually a legal and tax background. Um, and they are, they are then partnering up with like a construction group or things like that to get it done. But these deals are very complex to, to build up from a partnership standpoint and then to break down, they're very tough too. So, um, you know, it's from, from what I do at HFF, um, you know, a lot of my colleagues that do, you know, office, uh, investment sales or retail investment sales, you know, they're dealing with a guy that um, just might have like a, a pot of money that he's going out to, 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 to place. My, my, my clients are much more, um, you know, really super, you know, analytical people that can quickly, you know, figure out because the state each year will publish what their housing goals are. And they'll say, oh, we need to go find a piece of land in this area. And, you know, they'll, they'll, they, they figure out ways to, to, to score the highest on the allocation side. Um, so it's very rare that a, pro, a, a for-profit developer, or I shouldn't say a for-profit, a, a conventional developer moves in this space because, one, it takes you like a year and a half to do these deals, and you've got to do three or four a year to really make the, the pursuit costs work out for, for the developer. So it's very rare we just see someone do a one-off affordable housing deal. They're pretty much all in the entire time. So, yeah, are they... They'll say to themselves, "All right, Illinois has allocated X amount of dollars for affordable housing for these light for a Section 42 LIHTC program." Um, and then, do they just go out and pitch projects to the state of Illinois to see if they get approved? And what kind of competition do so, they have? Yeah, so so not to get too granular because uh, this this might go on for way too long than we all we all wanted to. Um, there are two types of credits that are given um, throughout the country. There's a 9% credit and a 4% credit. The I, would, nine, I would like the 9%. <laughs> the 9% credits are competitive. Um, they're going to offset roughly 70% of your development costs. But each state is allocated a, a finite number of 9% credits based on their population. Um, don't quote me on this. I believe it's like a, a dollar for every citizen you have in the state. I think you get $1.15 credits per year. Um, and so the state will have these, again, just using round numbers, let's say they have $10 million in credits to allocate this year. Um, they will then dis- they, they'll put out what they called a, a QAP, which is a qualified allocation process, where it basically lists that this year we want to address, you know, domestic violence shelters, you know, transient, you know, focused developments, things like that. And that if your project meets these criteria, you get these you, you get these points awarded to you. And literally all they do is they have applications open and it's a blind application process. You might be going against 50 other sites um, that are trying to get those same number of credits. So that's another frustrating thing for the affordable housing developers. Um, 
on these competitive 9% deals, they're having to, you know, put in applications and, you know, six or seven different states, you know, three or four applications per state, hoping that they basically get a 20% hit rate on that. And they really don't know, um, you know, what they're up against until once the applications are closed, because it's all, you know, public information, you can see all the properties that were submitted to, to be scored. And they literally just go, if, if the top, if, if, the top project um, needed $2.1 million in credits uh, and they got the $2.1 million. They just keep going down that list until there's no more credits left. And so, I mean, I can't think of a more agonizing position to be that one deal that was just south of being awarded credits because you, you don't get that chance again until next year for the competitive credits. Now, the 4% credits offset 30% of your development costs, and those come with taxes and bond financing. So on taxes and bond financing, you're typically getting higher leverage because your um, your rate's going to be lower, and uh, and you're you're getting these four percent credits. So, for the most part, in terms of affordable housing development, it's going to be, you know, 65, 70 percent of your inventory is going to be created through nine percent credits, and the other 30 percent of your inventory is going to be through the four percent credit. Um, and it's it's and on those four percent deals. You're typically layering on other sources of financing outside of your bonds. You're you're finding soft funds from maybe a county that's kind of allocated a couple hundred thousand dollars to affordable housing, things like that. The four percent deals, they're just um, when I say they're 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 a nightmare to capitalize. If one piece of your capital stack falls out, you've got to fill that gap somehow. And the mindset of an affordable housing developer is to never put money into the deal because by nature of it, it's a it's not a very cash flowing asset. You get developer fees and you do make money off of it. So that's always the challenge is capitalizing these deals um, from start to finish. So can you talk about the unwinding process a little yep. bit? So on the section 42 deals, you have a 15 year initial uh, period where the property is subject to recapture. Again, I, 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 I credit the, 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 the individuals that, that thought about this program because what they thought about was well, what happens at year seven if the guy just says, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to be affordable housing anymore. We've given them seven years of credits and what's our recourse? Um, the IRS can actually go back and get recapture on the credits he's used if he falls out of compliance. So it's another check and balance in the entire process. Um, and so for that reason, when Coke or Google or whomever is, um, is the tax credit investor, they're looking at this roughly a 10 to 15 year transaction period because um, they are I like they are they are they are setting aside this money for the for the tax benefits that even though they're paid out they're it's a 15 year initial compliance period but the credits are paid out over a 10 year period so but if you if if you're the tax credit investor and you sell your property at year eight to someone else the credits stay at the property they don't keep going to the investor so the the investor is always going to be in it until at a minimum the end of year 10 when the credit stopped flowing. And then when they unwind it, it's typically the, the tax credit investor that will come to HFF and say, look, um, you know, I've got a 220 unit deal in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, my, um, I'm no longer getting credits on anymore. This is, in, on paper, they're a 99.9% .9 owner of the real estate, so it's technically a liability to them. Um, even though their GP is signing all the guarantees against the debt and things like that, it's, on paper, it's their, it's, it's their, their liability. 
And so we'll typically work with the journal partner and say, look, you know, it's let's think about ways that we can unwind this. We can either refinance the deal, do a cash out refi that will pay out whatever back end value the tax credit investor has, um, or we can sell it to collapse the partnership that way. But whenever, whenever the property is sold, the new owner is agreeing to the existing restrictions that will remain for at a minimum, you know, through that initial 30 year period. So a lot of the deals we work on, like right now we have a deal under contract in Rochester, New York, 504 unit deal. Um, it is being sold at year 12 of the transaction. Um, the tax credit investor wants out. Uh, the buyer is um, going to be assigned the Lura at, at closing where they basically acknowledge that they have to keep this as affordable housing for the next um, you know, three plus 15 years. Um, and the general partner and the tax credit investor will be, you know, splitting the equity based the, 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 the cash proceeds based on their partnership agreement. Um, and so that's a deal where it's simply just an investor is going in there and they're buying the in-place cash flow and that's it. Um, there's no type of tax advantage player anything right. like that. Yeah. Buildings up and running. Yeah. Cash flow is coming out. Just is it worth it based upon the purchase price? So they, on, on, on these, so in, in terms of you as a broker, you don't, Sometimes you come in before um, the deal is set up or before, I guess, you go through that process with, with the government of trying to get the deal, but sometimes you also come in during the recapitalization process or... Yeah, I would say 90% um, of our transactions um, are, are well after the credits have been delivered to the property. Um, you know, just from like a, a uh, you know, return on investment, a lot of these deals are very speculative. Um, and so for us to be assisting with kind of capitalizing an affordable housing deal, um, it's a lot of time and effort that might not end up in a, in, in a fee to HFF. So typically, we're getting involved much more so in deals where the credits have already been delivered and they're looking to unwind it. Or if they have been awarded credits and for whatever reason, their debt provider, you know, balked at the last second, then we'd quickly try and find them a new, um, you know, debt piece. But we're very rarely in there from like day zero until there's actually, you know, um, uh, the, the, the building's place in service. Yeah, I would imagine it's mostly the developer who's looking for these deals is going to be the person pushing everything in order to get the tax credits in place. I mean, they're the actual broker's commission is going to be just on a vacant piece of land. Yeah, so what we're, you know, we, um, you know, again, where we're, we're getting all of our fee income for the most part is through um, either the disposition of the property or doing a recapitalization um, at some point in that in that cycle. So take us into the the world of brokerage a little bit because I've always I've always wondered as, as an attorney um, and and I think brokers are very helpful like in the in the deals we've worked on. Um, but what, how do you find, uh, like in this situation, someone, a seller comes to you, I'm looking to sell, how do you find buyers? Like what's, what's the process? Like, I'm sure there's mark, some marketing, um, uh, some marketing things you put together, yep. or some slides and then, uh, but is it also over the years you've built a network now where you can contact someone and say, I have this or, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, um, I, when I say I know that I've had it easy, don't get me wrong, I've worked very hard to do this, but um, I've gotten to the point now where I have a really solid stable of about 10 clients, because I do this across the country, um, whereas we're obviously always working with new clients. They'll come to us just through referrals and things like that, but um, 
the HFF brand uh, really does a good job of, you know, of people will come to HFF and say, hey, I've got this random deal in, in, in Huntington Beach, California. Do you know anybody that can help out with it? And somebody will get me in touch with them or whatnot. Um, but from, you know, in my first days of brokerage, yes, it was a lot of just kind of, you know, going to networking events, you know, meeting these owners. The great thing about my industry specifically is because there's some type of government subsidy involved, everything's public information. So what a lot of my team does um, in Atlanta is we we file tons of freedom of information requests with states. Um, so if we know that there is a deal that is getting close to that year 15 window, um, we will start two years before it actually hits year 15, you know, figuring out who has the debt, who was a tax credit investor, who and, and, and start trying to triangulate and figure out who to get in front of um, to and, and then start, you know, potentially working on that deal two or three years later. Um, but for the most part, for, for my book of business, HFF, I've got, you know, 10 really loyal clients to me that, that this is a very, um, you know, most people's image of brokerage is just like, you know, we're going to get this huge bidding war started with eight different groups and just that's how the broker adds value. In my world, the broker's adding much more value by understanding exactly how to unwind these deals as opposed to like, you know, trying to play games with between buyers and things like that. And, and, and that's, it's, it's, we've been able to cultivate a lot of really deep, long-standing relationships through that. But finding the buyers, um, there's just certain groups that seek out these type of investments. And just because we're in this, we're, we're you know, I, I think we've done $1.9 in business over the last four years because we're doing so much transactional activity. We're, you know, we have a pretty good idea of who the top 25 groups are um, before we even kind of start working on a deal. And we just kind of really focus our attention on those groups. And obviously... If someone comes that, that like a Starwood that was never in there, they'll come and say, hey, this is why we want to get involved in this. Can you kind of educate us on it? And that's how we work through for kind of bringing new capital into the field. What kind of percentage of property out there is this kind of inventory? So this is actually the most remarkable thing that I don't think a lot of people realize is um, since I think it was 2002, nearly 50% of all the housing units, for rental housing units that have been developed have some type of Section 42 component to it. Yeah. Um, and the reality is that, you know, like in states in California where there's inclusionary housing, they were, they, they were, for new development, they require a certain percentage to be affordable housing. And so what typically happens is that developer, you know, and I'm just throwing names out here, let's just say a Camden uh, wants to do a 400 unit deal in, in San Francisco, they'll end up partnering up with a local affordable housing guy to, you know, do that 20% and kind of do the tax credits and all that type of stuff to, to, to help them capitalize their stack. And so it, it's, it's, you know, there's really, you know, over the next seven to eight years, it's going to be an interesting time because a lot of these deals start unwinding to year 15. And that's where we're seeing more buyers enter the space because now it, it used to be when, when I started doing this 12 years ago, you know, you would tell someone that we're working on a LIHTC deal um, and they wouldn't know what we're talking about. Now, people might not own LIHTC product, but they, they know what it exists. They know what the metrics are and, and they're, they're starting to, to look at it as, as an alternate investment. God, I can't believe it was that high. I thought you were going to say like 2%. Uh, it's, uh, and, and, and what's also, again, to go back to just what a, what a great program it's been. I think like the failure rate has, has been less than 1% on these deals. Um, and so a lot of these deals that are being delivered to the, to, you know, for affordable housing, 
it's not as if that they were only done just to get a developer fee and things like that. They're, they've succeeded. Um, and so, I mean, again, it's a testament to the vision that, um, that, that, that these individuals had 30 years ago now. Um, and, 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 and what, what a, what a good job it's done again, especially right now in Washington, there's not much bipartisan support, but there's no, you know, there is the, the, the section 42 task credit is nowhere near the radar of, of one day going away because even the groups that are as, you know, as far right as you can be recognize that it's an efficient way of delivering units and not having, when I say not having government involved, they're obviously overseeing it, but they're not actually, you know, kind of being the landlord in the situation. Yeah, it's interesting. It's pro-business, pro-government, and pro-people. Yeah, no, it's, it's really one of the few things where, um, you know, at HFF, we're always talking about, like, you know, different regulatory issues that we deal with across all real estate sectors. Um, and, you know, there, there was some anxiety when the election happened in November about what would happen to Section 42. But immediately, um, you know, it was uh, tremendous bipartisan support. Where we see a risk right now for LIHTC deals is if corporate tax rates go down, obviously, there's, there's less demand for credits. Um, and so that's something that when I say we have our, um, you know, we're, we're looking at, you can make the argument that, um, that, that the market where you set itself. And so if a credit is now selling for 98 cents and the corporate tax rates go down to 25, 22%, maybe it sells at 92 cents a credit now or whatnot. But, um, that the idea that there, this will ever go away, I think it's just, it's just not happening. Interesting. Well, that, that was fascinating to learn about. Um, did you want to? Do you have any more questions about that, or did you want to talk about something more fun? Uh, I say we can talk about some of the more fun things. Uh, not that not that um, being a broker isn't fun, but we can talk about some of the more fun things Doug has done in his life. No, uh, oh, Doug, can you tell us about? Uh, so you you worked for the uh, Atlanta Braves, correct? That is accurate. Yes. Can you tell us uh, what your role was for the Atlanta Braves? And so, then uh, the time period that you worked for them. So yeah, I was a I was a clubhouse attendant um, from 1999 until 2000. I think it was let's say I started with HFF in 2004. So probably around 2004 is when I when I left the Braves. Um, I was essentially just a glorified gopher. Um, uh, I mean, technically, I, I was considered to be a bat boy. I rarely went on the field, but that was kind of my role was from noon to midnight on, on the day of games, I was essentially just at the stadium, whether it be washing and folding towels, preparing food for the players, making sure their equipment was put away. I was essentially like their, you know, a, a, a mom uh, for, for, for 25 millionaires each day. Um, and it was, it was a great experience. Um, you know, that was during, it was towards the end of like their run with the uh, division titles. Um, and I can say unequivocally, uh, you know, before I started with the Braves, I was confident that anybody on the face of the earth could manage the Braves with the rotation they had and win 100 games. And, um, you know, outside of, of my dad and, and one of my granddads, the, the smartest man I've ever been around has been Bobby Cox, without a doubt. The way he managed people, the way he was able to motivate people to do things that they probably didn't want to do at times. I mean, I, I know it sounds very weir weird to say it out loud, but if he had asked me to run across four lanes of traffic, 
because it might help the Braves win. I mean, I probably would have just done it. You know, what I mean, like that's just because like that he he, ha- he has like that leadership quality where you, if, if he says we need to do this because it might help us win, you say, well, it doesn't make much sense, but this is what he wants me to do. This is what I'm doing, and um and so it was just a great experience. You know, at first I was just enamored being around you know Greg Maddox, um, Tom Glavin, John Smoltz, all those guys. But it was towards the end where I was just really. Um, I, I, I saw how Bobby Cox operated, and I was just blown away at, 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 at how he was able to really galvanize 25 extremely unique individuals. I mean, as you know, most of the rosters now on, on major league teams, you know, a quarter of them can't even really speak English that well. You know what I mean? And, and there's, there's, there's just so there's some diverse backgrounds where these players are coming from. And to get them all focused on one common goal, um, I, I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for him. And it, it's, I've always told people that if Bobby Cox had not chosen baseball as a path and had you know gone to college and got an MBA, he would have been a Fortune 500 CEO. With there's no doubt in my mind about it. That, that just how quickly he is he is able to to get information, process it, and make a decision that when I say rarely works out, you know against what he was trying to accomplish is it's it was thrilling to watch yeah That's and really cool and to keep it going for that long i mean they they were they had it going for what like 15 seasons yeah. pretty much i mean and, and you saw like it was like three different braves that you saw i mean you, you had like the 91 to 94 then you had like the 95 to 96 kind of where you stepped mm-hmm. in and then you even and then for them to even keep that going after like oh one oh two after yeah. those pitchers started getting old it was amazing like it's i remember First year in law school, uh, and the Braves, or second year in law school, the Braves are still uh, winning the division. Why? And then I remember being in like fourth and fifth grade, and they were winning the division too. And it was just amazing that he kept it going that long. Yeah, their uh, big thing was always being consistent, and and and, and that's what's you know I, I, I hate. To, I'm not trying to be a Braves apologist here because I understand we only won one World Series in that in those 15 years. But what's so unique about baseball is that your your best teams rarely win 60% of the time. And then you go to a posting environment where it's a best of five series. And if you have one bad game, you're essentially your, your entire body of work from April until October is, is wiped out. That's why, I mean, I love playoff baseball so much is because really every pitch matters, but you know, where the Braves weakness was is that we were built for a 162 game season. We were never really built for a, five game playoff um and that's you know if, if we'd 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 have and when i was there smoltz was going through his arms issues where he was kind of more in the bullpen but back in our heyday when you had you know smoltz glavin and maddox and you threw him out there but if one of those guys lost you're automatically behind the eight ball because we never had the offense to really to to to, to, to outscore anybody yeah kind of like Thibodeau on the Bulls. I mean, great, great regular yeah, season team. Yeah, very similar. And then in the playoffs, just it was just hard for them in a, in a seven-game series to, to win four. But also don't feel bad about one championship in 15 years. You're, you're in Chicago right now. We, <laughs> we get one every 100 years. <laughs> well, you got – I will um, – you know, Theo Epstein, when he's with the Red Sox, that was when I was at the Braves, when he just became, like, the youngest GM ever. Um, and – I remember a lot of people kind of scoffing at the idea of like what a brilliant mastermind he was because like because like the Red Sox. This is always annoying about the Red Sox. You know they complain about the Yankees being the evil empire, but they had like a hundred twenty million dollar payroll too. Um, and so a lot of people were, 
I, myself included with like Theo at the Red Sox were like, yeah, it must be hard to, to be a GM of a team that has like unlimited resources. Um, but to see what he did in Chicago where um, he, he built it up through the farm system as opposed to going out and doing what he did in Boston, which was more of kind of free agent acquisitions and things like that. I mean, I think it's really, really impressive. I've, I've never had the opportunity to meet Theo, um, but, you know, he was at the Red Sox when I was at the Braves. Um, and it was, you know, there were a lot of old school, you know, front office Braves employees that were, I don't want to say mocking him, but were very skeptical that, you know, a guy that didn't have any minor league baseball experience, had never played. I think, I think the highest he got was, I think he might have played um, high school baseball. I might be wrong on that, but in any event, you know, in baseball during that time period, um, the idea was that if you didn't play at a high level, even in the minor leagues, then like you weren't qualified to actually say like who is a good player or not, because they would say, well, you right. you know you, don't, you you're and and Theo was part of that you know the Billy Bean school of like I don't really need to see a player to see what his tools are. I'll just look at the stat page and I'll figure out like whether or not he's good or not. So, um, so yeah, but congrats to the Cubs. Um, it's where in Atlanta right now, everybody's saying, look, you know, the Cubs went through a three year, you know, period where it was just miserable, but look what it, you know, it all paid off. And so next year they're saying will be our year that, um, we actually start competing again. Um, no, I just want to ask you, did you, I, I remember, I remember, uh, talking to you about this back in, uh, kind of like late towards college about your, was it your thesis that was on the economic structure of baseball? And then, um, did that, uh, did that get any attention from anyone? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Or? Um, this is, uh, I, this was, I'll, I'll definitely take stock of myself and, and admit looking back on this now, 15 years ago, I'm lucky someone didn't punch me in the face and tell me to shut up because I was, uh, <laughs> I, at that point, I didn't even have my, my degree yet, and um, I was confident that I had all the answers to baseball's labor strife, um, and uh, I did write um, a, a bunch of different topics, uh, you know, theories, and um, because I was working for the Braves at the time, I had access to, like, sending different people, and I mean, I got, you know, some responses back and things like that, but it was... Uh, it was definitely now, um, I could imagine if, uh, and I, I'm sure it happens with you guys here at the law firm, you know, at HFF, you have to go through tons of rounds of interviews to actually get, you know, a job as an analyst at HFF. And so even though they might not be working on my team, you know, I'll meet with a bunch of different, you know, rising seniors now for, you know, for, for potential employment. And there are so many times I walk away from like those interviews being like, man, someone needs to slap that kid. Cause like, he's literally like, you know, he's, he's literally talking about things he doesn't know and acting as if that he's, he's going to be the beacon that's going to save us all here at HFF where I'm sure a lot of people probably thought that way about me when I was, you know, telling them the best way to, uh, to divide, uh, revenue sharing and things like that. Well, Doug, I want to thank you for your time. Thanks for explaining section eight and uh live tech product. Thanks for, taking us back in time to the Braves and uh, meeting Raul. And I uh, appreciate your time today. Uh, thanks so much. And uh, please, if anybody has any questions, Raul knows how, knows how to get in touch with me. And uh, we, we can help out as needed. Thanks so much. Right. Thanks, thanks, Doug. Nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guests. 
you are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of the SATC Solutions Center, Shank Annis Tepper Campbell, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the host and guest's individual capacities. All opinions on this podcast are or have been rendered based on specific facts under certain conditions and are subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to, for use in or in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceedings.